Well, welcome back. I see a number of faces from yesterday. You are certainly gluttons for punishment. <laughs> I appreciate your willingness to endure. Uh, it shows me that uh, you read your Bibles and you understand hupomone from Jeff Jenkins' lesson the other night. Yesterday, we talked about the idea. We defined a few terms. Uh, we kind of redefined the term teaching and what a teacher is. And if you remember, we talked about, I really would like to encourage you to change your, your concept of being a teacher to being one who leads learning. If you remember, we redefined learning. Does anybody remember how we defined learning from yesterday? You have only learned what you do. And what is the job of a teacher? To cause to learn, right? And, and so we have to help people not just to understand what Scripture says, but also become doers of the Word. We talked about James chapter 1, that idea that, that we need to help them become doers of the Word because that Word can help them, guide them, ultimately can save their soul, according to James chapter 1, right? Today, so yesterday we talked about our purpose in teaching, Today, I want to take about 12 hours of material and crunch it down into 40 minutes and, and talk about a couple of different things. I want to talk briefly about preparation. This is not a class about preparation. Uh, I'm not here to teach you how to study the Bible to prepare your lessons. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, but I want to also talk about presentation, what we do in the classroom that I modeled for you yesterday. We'll model for, it, for you a little bit more today. And then I want to talk about making application of the text because I think that's one of the most important things that we can do. When we first talk about preparation, I want to teach you three questions. And there are three questions that should always guide your study, whether you're teaching or not. You really need to develop the, the process of when you study scripture to answer three questions. First, what does the text say? Sometimes we don't spend enough time on what the text actually says before we start interpreting what it says. We jump to interpretation long before we're careful about what it actually says. And what it says means looking at the specific words, looking at, at what it says, looking at the context that we find the passage in or whatever we're trying to teach. So what does it say? Then what does it mean? Now, sometimes we want to jump to what does it mean to me? Wrong question, right? What does it mean to the audience it was written to? What does it mean to that first century audience? What did it mean to them? What did Jesus tell that group on the mountain? What was he trying to communicate to them? And that's where meaning is found. It's not found in what I want it to mean. Scripture basically has one meaning. A passage has one primary meaning, it may have lots of different applications, but it has one primary meaning. And then the third question is, how does it apply? And when we talk about how does it apply, we're talking about building a bridge from that first century audience and its meaning to them to a 21st century audience and what it now means to us in 2021 in, in Texas or Denver or Colorado, wherever we happen to find ourselves, right? That bridge of now, what do I do with this text? And so 
remember those three questions. Always be focused. Don't spend too much time jumping to the next point until you're ready to say, I understand what this says. I understand what the words are. I understand what the context is. Now what does it mean and how does it apply? Those three questions, I'll tell you what, if you just take away from this workshop those three questions and you apply them in your personal Bible study, your approach to scripture will fundamentally change. Because now you're seeking the meaning of the text, right? You're not thinking about what you think it means. You're seeking what God is trying to tell you and how it might apply in your life. So that's the extent of preparation. I would also suggest you you maybe look at some videos. Denny Petrillo, who I work with at the Bear Valley Bible Institute, teaches courses on exegesis. We call it extra Jesus class. Uh, But exegesis is just the idea of doing contextual Bible study, looking at passages in their context. It's a whole other field. Maybe one day Wayne will have me or or Denny come back and teach uh, a series of classes uh, here at Focal Point on exegesis. I know we've done that in the past. But there are lots of resources for you about how you study. But if you'll just kind of burn those three questions in your mind, I think it'll help. What my job is, is to tell you how, what do we do then, right? We know what the passage means. We've looked at the passage. We're trying to teach it now to others. What do we do? And if we, if you accept my definitions of teaching and learning, then what I want to encourage you to do is adopt something that's sometimes referred to as discovery learning. When you think about how you learn, it's very different sometimes than how you're taught, isn't it? I, I, I mean, we as students learn differently than sometimes our teachers present the information to us. And if we come into the classroom as teachers focused on their learning, that means we're going to adapt to them rather than forcing them to adapt to us. And oftentimes as teachers, we force the group, the larger group, to adapt to our teaching style rather than focusing on their learning and trying to adapt to theirs. And, and when we talk about discovery learning, we're talking about the doing. Any, anybody here, fishermen? Do I have any fishermen in the group? Okay, a couple, just a, a couple. You know, one of the things, I always wanted to learn how to fish. Guess how I learned it? Doing it. <laughs> By going fishing. Now, I can read books on fishing, can't I? And it'll tell me a lot about fishing, but it's really different when you go drown a worm in a lake, right, trying to catch a fish. All of a sudden, all the stuff that you read in the book has a a more practical application, and some of the things don't work as easily reading them as they do when you're actually out at the lake, or vice versa. Some things you read in the book and you think, oh, that's going to be really easy. Just cast the, the line and you hook your shirt or you hook the tree or you, you do whatever and you've got this knot in your line and you're trying. You learn some things better from the doing, don't you? And, and as a matter of fact, most things that we learn, we learn better by participating in the learning, not just sitting passively in what we called yesterday the pit of passivity. Remember we talked about that yesterday. We want to move students from passive learning to active learning. We want to make them participants in their own education. We want to get them involved. And how do we do that? Ask questions. 
Ask them questions, right? Engage their thinking. Don't just resort to lecture all the time. I'm actually going to lecture a lot more here than I would normally lecture. Some of that is the environment that we find ourselves in. Some of that is the time frame that I'm compressed into here. But by asking questions, I'm asking you to look at the text. I'm asking you to, to give me information, and I'm going to lead you through it. You know, in, in the Greek language in the New Testament, there's two words for knowledge. There's oida and there's gnosko. Oida is factual knowledge, the kind of knowledge that you get maybe by reading. One of the illustrations that I use quite often is I can put you in a classroom and I can teach you about skydiving, right? I can teach you about packing a parachute. I can teach you about terminal velocity and what it's going to be like when you jump out of the airplane. I can teach you when, at what altitude to pull the ripcord, how to control the chute, all that kind of stuff. And I can demonstrate that in a classroom. I can teach you in the classroom. And you know what? When you leave the classroom, you know about skydiving, don't you? That's OIDA. But now I put you in an airplane at 10,000 feet. I put a parachute on your back. I open the door and I push you out. Do you have a different knowledge of skydiving now than you had 15 minutes ago? Hopefully. Uh, hopefully. I think you do, right? That experiential knowledge is gnosko. And we see that distinction in the Greek language. And we see that throughout scripture. And one of the things that we want to do in our classrooms is create that experiential knowledge to help them understand how it applies. Not just the head knowledge of OIDA, but that heart knowledge and that experiential knowledge of Gnosko. And so we need to learn to ask questions. We need to get them engaged. But we talked yesterday about the dangers of that, didn't we? The dangers of time. We worry about time. When we ask questions, what happens to the clock? It goes faster than we want, right? Because we start chasing rabbits if we're not careful. We're going to talk about how to control that a little bit. We're also worried about the question. What is the question that I talked about yesterday? The one you don't want know the answer to, right? The one out of, that kind of comes out of nowhere. And so we don't want to just open it up for any question because then we may get a question that we're not prepared for. And so to avoid that, guess what we do? We don't ask questions at all. We lecture through. We try to beat the clock. We try to cover the material. We're more interested in our teaching than necessarily their learning. And as a result, we don't engage their thinking. We don't move them into active listening. We allow them to pitch their tent in the pit of passivity. And so how do we do that? Well, I'm, I'm going to actually show you a little trick that I use to teach a Bible class, but I need a volunteer. Somebody that's got a nice loud voice. Can you talk nice and loud for me? You can sit there, I think. You'll be okay. Are you familiar with a deck of cards? And we're not going to gamble. Don't please nobody get upset with me. But we're going to talk about playing cards for just a second. Are you familiar with a deck of playing cards? Yes. Okay. So a deck of playing cards has four suits, right? Two are black and two are red. Pick black or red, and you'll need to give me the answers as you do this. So, and say them nice and loud so everybody can hear. Black or red? Black. Okay, that leaves the red cards, right? And in red cards, you have diamonds and hearts. Pick one of those for me. Diamonds. Okay, that leaves the hearts. Now, in a suit of cards, in the suit of hearts, 
you have numbered cards and face cards, right? Numbered cards being ace through ten, face cards being jack, queen, king. Would you pick one of those groups? Numbered. Okay, and the numbered cards, pick five cards in a row in the numbered cards for me. Two, three, four, five, six. Would you pick three of those for me, please? Four, five, six. Four, five, six. That leaves the two and three of hearts. Pick one of those. Two. The two of hearts. That leaves the three of hearts, right? So we just had you select a card, somewhat at random. A friend of mine, I gave him an envelope when we first started. Would you, would you please open the envelope for me and see what's inside that envelope? It's a card. What card is it? Would you say it nice and loud? The three of hearts. The three of hearts. Ta-da. <laughs> it's not magic, folks. And most of you already know how I did it. You probably already know how I did it. Some of you maybe didn't. But that, the trick is not the point. What I did is the point. And I'm serious when I tell you that what I did, I just do every time I teach a Bible class. Now, what did I do? You got a clue? What did I do? Whenever I selected something you didn't like, you went with the other option. Yeah, what did I know before I even asked this gentleman to help me with the trick? I knew what was in the envelope, didn't it? Well, how did I know what was in the envelope? Because I put the card in the envelope. It's not magic, right? I got a deck of cards this morning. I put the three hearts in the envelope. I sealed it up. Now all I have to do is make you pick the three of hearts. And how did I do that? I asked questions. And as I got answers, I steer the question my way. Flip back to Ezra chapter 7. We looked at this passage yesterday. So I want to I do it again for just a second. And I'm going to tell you that there are three cards... In my lesson in Ezra chapter 7. In Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. It talks about Ezra and, and what he did. And if you remember yesterday. I asked the question. What does Ezra 7 tell us about Ezra and being a teacher? How does it connect us to being a teacher? What does it say that Ezra did? What's something you see? He set his heart. Now, I'll tell you, that was my primary card for Ezra 7, because it all starts from the heart in that passage, right? If he doesn't adjust his heart, he's not going to do the other things. So I want to get you to talk about setting his heart. Now, I could have just told you that Ezra set his heart, but why do I want you to see it and give it to me instead? Discovery learning. I've moved you from passive listening to an active participant in the class, haven't I? I want you to look at your Bible. I want you to read the verse. I want you to think about what it says. I want you to give it back to me. Now, it's, there's actually four things in that verse, right? It says that he set his heart. It says that he studied the law. He practiced the law. And he taught the law in Israel. Those are the four things that I want to talk about as a teacher. I know what Ezra 7 verse 10 talks about. So those become my four cards. And I ask questions. What if you had told me, what's one of the other things? I remember, I want to talk about setting his heart. But what if you had picked one of the other four things? Is that okay? 
with me as a teacher? It should be, right? If it's one of the things I want to talk about. So if I ask the question again, so what do you see that Ezra did? Somebody give me a different answer other than set his heart. He studied the law. We can talk about what it means to study. Why did he study the law? What does the text say about why he studied the law? So that he could teach it. What did he have to do before he could teach it? He had to practice it. And why did he study and practice the law so he could teach it? Because he set his heart to do it. No matter what answer you give me, we're going to get back to the other three. Just like I'm going to get you to the three of hearts, right? No matter what question I ask, no matter what answer you get me, we're going to get to the four things that I want to talk about in Ezra 7. But notice the difference in that versus me just getting up here and saying, if you turn to Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, you'll notice that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it and to teach it in Israel. First of all, that took a lot less time than it did for us to ask questions and get the feedback, didn't it? But what else did it do? Yeah, you're back in the chaise lounge at the bottom of the pit of passivity with your umbrella and your sweet tea just waiting for class to end. I've moved you to passive listening, haven't I? But if I ask you the question, guess what? You've got to give me an answer. Somebody's got to give me an answer. Now, sometimes as teachers, that's the other skill that we need to learn, and that's that we need to learn to wait for an answer. <laughs> sometimes when we ask a question and there's silence, guess what we do? We give them the answer. Guess what? We teach them. If they don't answer, just wait. He'll give you the answer in a minute. I, you still don't have to engage. But if I wait for the answer, then I'm getting you to look at your Bible. Do you need your Bible in Bible class if, in a class like this? If you show up in a class like I'm, I'm modeling here, do you need to have a Bible open? You do if you want to learn anything, right? Because the answers are in the text. They're not just going to come from me. I'm going to point you to Scripture. I want Scripture to teach you, not just me. And instead of teaching you, I'm going to lead your learning, right? I want you engaged in the process. I want you to learn. And so I do the card trick over and over and over again. And as a result, I'm preparing you. I'm, I'm doing a couple of things. One, I'm, I'm, I'm causing you to be an active participant. But do you remember what it says in Ephesians 4, 12? What's, what's our job? He said he gave some as, a prophet, some as prophets, some as pastors, some as evangelists, some as teachers for what? To, to the building up of the work of service, to build up the church, to the work of service. What else? To the equipping of the saints. Guys, why don't our classes do more to help teacher, te students learn how to study on their own? Do we do that very much? I mean, as a matter of fact, often we seek to show them what the text means... We've spent the time and effort in studying it. We've been trained. We're, we're the professionals, or we are the teachers. We're the authority. We know how to study, but wouldn't it be great if we taught them how to study on their own? How much time do we get in front of them every week? 40 minutes. If you add Wednesday night, another class, 
80 minutes? Are those the only 80 minutes we expect them to study throughout the week? No. But do we prepare them to study on their own? Do we train them to look at the text? Do we ask questions that we want them to learn to ask and seek the answers in the text? Or do we train them to be passive listeners? Forgetful hearers, maybe even as James would suggest. And that in that forgetful hearing, we're not equipping them for the work of service. So we're not equipping them to feed themselves. Now, why might preachers be afraid of doing that? Because it's my job to feed them, isn't it? That's what they pay me for. They pay me to teach. If you know how to teach yourself, guess what? Maybe I'm not needed anymore. Sometimes I'm afraid we think that way. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because they still need guidance. They still need someone to push them deeper. But as they build, what's going to happen if they build those skills themselves? What's going to happen if they start to understand Scripture more deeply? What are we going to be able to do as teachers? Okay, work on someone else. Learn from them. Teachers don't learn from the people in the audience. Of course we can, can't we? Is it possible that as I teach through a section, you might notice something in the text that I hadn't noticed? And if you share that with the group because I ask a question, it's part of your... Is that good for everybody in the room, including the teacher? It is, isn't it? You can also go deeper. I can go deeper. You know, we're experts at water skiing. I want to make scuba divers. What's the difference between water skiing and scuba Water skiing, you cover the whole lake, don't you? Just skimming over the surface. What's a scuba diver do? Doesn't cover a lot of ground, but goes deep, right? I would love for us to spend more time going deeper, challenging you to think about those deeper, meatier issues of Scripture, challenging you to really think more, more deeply about Scripture and what What's going on? Challenge yourself to when you leave this building to take yourself deeper in Scripture. Wouldn't that be a good thing? And then I'm leading your learning not just while we're together for 40 minutes in a classroom, but now I'm helping lead your learning outside of this building. For Christians, how many of you struggle with studying Scripture on your own? I mean... I think it's a problem, and I think it's one of the major failures of the church is we don't teach our members how to study. We get up here and tell you what it means. We get up here and share with you what we've studied, and and we're demonstrating our depth of knowledge, but we rarely equip you to study on your own. But if our classroom dynamic becomes more engaging... If our classroom dynamic becomes more asking and sharing the knowledge from the group, and I'm not saying asking what does this mean to you, we're not talking about that. We can help everybody develop those skills, train them to look at the text, train them to go deeper, can't we? Now there's two other benefits of this. One is it allows me to control the clock. You know that nasty little circular thing that spins? I need to tell you, I'm going to reveal a secret. Yesterday, how many of you were here yesterday in this session? Okay, quite a few of you. 
We covered four passages of scripture yesterday that we talked about. I'm not going to ask you which ones they were. Don't worry. There's no quizzes or tests. We know we don't do that in the church. We probably should, but we're not going to. But did you know that I had six that I wanted to cover? Did I fail yesterday? No. Did it matter that I didn't cover the other two? No. Did you learn from the four that I covered? I hope so. <laughs> I, w- I will assume so based on the comments that I got after class. But what's the difference? If I present the six and I teach in a traditional way, what am I concerned about? I'm concerned about getting through the six, right? Why? Because I spent all the time on the other two. Now, the interesting part was the ones that I covered were based on your answers, not on my presentation. When I started to answer questions and ask questions and get answers, I leveraged the passages that fit your answers. And it allowed me to share with you those verses. I could have gone more, but I also controlled the clock. That nasty little thing that we fear so much. Because what happens if I can't get the discussion going as much? Guess what? I've got two more verses I can talk about, right? So if I'm going to run out of time, which almost never happens, it does happen. The problem is not usually finishing class and looking up and realizing you still have 20 minutes of class. That does happen. That's usually, honestly, that's usually a lack of preparation, to just be honest. But more often than not, those of you in here that teach, how often do you cover everything that you presented? Ever, right? But what's driving us during that clock? We've got 13 pages of notes. What's our goal? To try to get as much of that in their minds as I can. To cover as much that I put. Because I put a lot of effort and time into all of those notes. I want to share as much of that as I can with them. And I want to squeeze it in as fast as I can. Ever been in the Bible class where the teacher has said something along the lines of, uh, I see all the hands with questions. I'm sorry, we just don't have time for questions today or I'll never get through the material. You ever been in that class? Guess what? That's about teaching, not learning. That's me more concerned about teaching you my material than me concerned about what you're learning. Because when a hand goes up, what does that tell me as a teacher? What? There's an interest. There's a question. Maybe they don't understand something I just said. And I need to clarify it, right? We talked about that being one of the differences between preaching and teaching is when we preach from the pulpit, we don't have any confirmation that they understand. But if they're willing to ask a question in in a class, then I have the opportunity to evaluate, are they understanding what I'm teaching? Do they need clarification? Do I need to go back and cover something that I just said because I didn't say it clearly or I didn't present it clearly enough? That's certainly possible, isn't it? So I can control the time. I can increase the learning. What else do I do, though? Do you notice how you avoid the question that we're afraid of? You see, there's four cards that I'm asking about in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. There's four things I want you to see. I'm going to ask questions that are focused enough that they have to give me one of those four. And you know what's not going to happen? Somebody's not going to raise their hand and say, could you explain the Holy Spirit to me? Which is usually the one we don't want, right? Right? 
Or can you explain what gopher wood is? I'm going to say, where do you see the Holy Spirit in Ezra 7.10? Is it talking about the Holy Spirit here? No. So why don't we stay with Ezra 7.10 today? We'll have a class some other time on the Holy Spirit. But let's get back to Ezra 7.10. Do you see how it builds in the defense against the questions that we're not necessarily prepared for? Is your job as a teacher to be prepared for any Bible class question that could be asked? Is that your job? No, your job is to move them through a particular text on a particular day and not necessarily answer just any random Bible question that comes into their mind. But when we ask questions that are targeted on the text, that drive them into a particular text for the answer, guess what it does? It causes them to focus. It causes their brain not to run rampant to any Bible question they might have, but it causes them to start to look at the text in front of them and seek the answer that you're asking. So I can control the clock. I can control the questions at some level. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have somebody that just out of the blue asks a question, but by asking targeted questions, I have the built-in defense of saying, yes, but that's not dealt with in this verse. Let's say what this verse is talking about and get back into this text. And I can control the problem, can't I? All of those fears go away when we open it up. We don't have to be afraid of discussion. We don't have to be afraid of asking them for the question. Now, with the time that I have left, and I I have about 10 minutes, I understand. Where's my timer guy? Is he around somewhere? I don't see him. I think I have about 10 minutes. I want to look at application for just a second. Um, We could spend more time on the question asking, but I want to talk about application. Sometimes application stays too general to really be application. Uh, I I read one time uh, in a book, all application is action, but not all action is application. And I agree with that. Sometimes we make the wrong applications or we make broad applications. You should pray more. Okay, well, if you're struggling with your prayer life, what does that look like? Pray more, right? What do I, how do we get to the specifics? And we stay in the general area. You need to be more loving. Jesus was loving. You should be more loving. Okay. What does that look like? What does love look like? You know, I remember one time, and I teased the guy that did it. I hope none of you have done this. I'm not talking about you. But he was teaching a lesson on love, and and the application was, I want you to write the word love on a three-by-five card, and I want you to post it on your bathroom mirror in the morning. And every day, I want you to be reminded to be more loving. Okay, I get the idea. It's a great prompt. But if they're struggling with how to be more loving, does that help? No, as a matter of fact, all it tells them is that they should be more loving, but they don't really know how. We need to get to the how, don't we? We need to get to that equipping the saints. we got to get to the, the discussion of what does love look like in this environment? What is love, how is love demonstrated in this environment? How does prayer activate us? In it? What do we do? How do we live this out? And when we stay in the general, we allow people to hide in the general, don't we? But when we get into the specifics... Now we can talk about what does love really look like and how does it manifest itself in action. 
And what actions can we take that demonstrate love to our church family? And what actions can we take that demonstrate love to our community? And what actions can we take to demonstrate love to our coworkers and the people that we go to school with and the people that we work with and the people that we come in contact with? How are they going to see love? And now we can get to specific actions that we can take. And if we talk about specific actions, guess what we're doing? We're becoming doers of the word, not just merely hearers of the word. And so we've got to get to the specifics of application. One of the reasons why we don't is we spend all of our time talking about the text. And guess what? Here's another Bible class you've maybe been in. I had lots of good application for this this lesson today, but we just ran out of time. Guess what? We're back to that's about me teaching, not about your learning. Right? I, I asked yesterday, how many of you would like a sign to hold up in class or for your preacher that says, so what? Right? We got to get to the so what? we got to help them become doers. we got to get to the point where we talk about the doing. And that means we got to spend a little less time explaining the nuances of all the text and get to the point where we're talking about how do we live this text out day by day. What do we do? How does our behavior change? We're talking about transformation, not just head knowledge, right? I said yesterday that t- good quality teaching that transforms lives is not head-to-head, it's heart-to-heart. And we want to try to transform their hearts, which transforms their lives. Should we live differently based on what we've learned from this book? Yes, why don't we? Because we just don't ever get to the application. We get to the knowledge part, we get to the fact part, but we don't get to the doing part. And we need to spend more time doing. So how do we do that? Well, I want to suggest, first of all, there are lots of ways to do this. And we're not going to be able to cover them all. But first, look at the verbs. What are the four verbs in Ezra 7.10? What did Ezra do? Set? Studied? Thought I heard it. Practiced. And teach. Guess what? Those become our points of application, don't they? So now what do I need to do? What have you set your heart on? We can talk about, and I can challenge you in the class of what demonstrates, how do we show in our lives what our heart is set on? By our activities in the world? Do our habits show what we've set our heart on? Does what we spend our money on show what we've set our heart on? We can talk about what it means to set your heart and what should we be setting our hearts on. And we can make application, can't we? And in that discussion, I can help change, mold your behavior. What about study? Can we talk about what your study habits are and those kinds of things? Is that applicable to this text? It is, isn't it? And how you study and and what's the purpose of your study? Your study is to practice it. Put it into practice. Let's talk about practice. What does the word practice mean? And we can do it. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? Right? So look at the verbs. It's pretty simple. When you're looking at a particular passage, look at the verbs. It's interesting. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, 
one of my favorite passages to talk about studying the Bible. He says that he wants us to walk in a worthy manner. And then he gives us a number of participles, I-N-G words, verbs, that he tells us we should be doing in order to demonstrate that worthy walk. Bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened with all power, giving thanks. Guess what? Those would become my card tricks in the lesson. And guess what we're going to talk about? What does it mean to bear fruit? And how do we bear fruit? And let's get to the specifics of what we can do to bear fruit for the Lord. What are some things we can do today to bear fruit, right? We get to the application. What does it mean to trust, increase our knowledge? You're increasing your knowledge here this week. What does it mean to be strengthened with all power? When do we need strength the most? In, in difficult times, did we need strength this year? I would argue that we did, didn't we? What does it mean to be strengthened by his might rather than our own? How often do we trust in our own power rather than his? And if you're in that situation where you're trusting in your power over his, guess what? We need to turn that table. We can talk about the application of that, can't we? And what that looks like in our lives, to trust God rather than to trust ourselves. And I can ask for specific situations and we can talk about the struggles that we've had, and we can deal with those as a, as a family of Christ, and we can talk about how to handle those things better, and we can grow, can't we? And it's just simply by looking at the verbs. The last thing that I want to talk about with application in the couple of minutes that I have left is try to put people in the boat. Put people in the shoes of the people that are in the account. Now, I was hopeful that we would get to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. In 2 Kings chapter 5, you have this account of Naaman. And there are a number of characters throughout that, that account. You have the servant girl who was uh, enslaved uh, involuntarily. And what does she do? She actually tells her mistress that she has the solution to Naaman's problem. Can you imagine if somebody took you captive and took you away from your homeland, would you be very interested in helping them? What are we doing? We're making application of that text as the girl. I want you to become the little slave girl for a second. I want to try to put you in her shoes and ask, would you react the way she did? And if not, why not? And what does that look like in a modern context? We see the king of Aram who sends a message to his enemy that says, I want you to help this guy that I really care about, Naaman. I've heard that there's a solution, and I know we're enemies, but I want you to help. How would we make application of that? I want you to become the king of Aram for a minute. Are you willing to talk to your enemy in order to help somebody else? Do you have somebody that you have a grudge against? Somebody that, that maybe you, you've been at odds with? Are you willing to cross that bridge in order to help someone that needs help? See, I can put you in Aram, the king of Aram's shoes, right? I can help you see the situation. I can try to make you that king. And I got to say, and look at what he did. And look at what you do. And how do the two differ? Or how are they the same? Right? I can put you in the boat with the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm and help you experience their fear, but also help you experience the joy of, and the power of watching Jesus calm the sea. I can put you in the field with the feeding of the 5,000, watching Jesus over and over again tear the bread and the fish until there's so much that you, you, you're full from lunch. 
and how that might make you feel. I can put you at the tomb of Lazarus when he comes out of the tomb, when Jesus calls him out of the tomb. And I got to ask you, if you witnessed that with your own eyes, would your life be different? And how would it be different? And we can talk about that. And we can make those applications. And now it's not just a technical story. Now it's not just knowledge passed from head to head. Now it's application that's passed from heart to heart. Well, I hope this has helped. I, I want to challenge you. Remember, what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? Get your students involved in your class. Move them from passive listening to active listening. And always make time for the so what. Always make time to put them into the story. Make it part of their life. Make it relevant to them in their living. And guess what? Scripture will come alive and we can all grow together. Lead their learning. Don't just teach. Thank you for your time.